Welcome to A Drink with a Friend. I'm Seth Haynes. And I'm Tish Oxenreiter. Tish. Yes. How are you? You doing well? I'm doing well. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, is your mood matched by your drink today? That's the question. Kind of. Um, if you mean homemade and a little sour, then yes. Um, so Kyle <laughs> has started this new Perfect. hobby of making kombucha. We've we've both kind of said like in our 40s, we need to be more hobby-driven people. I'm sorry if you can hear my dog. Um, like we we forget to do things for fun, I think, sometimes when we're in our middle age of life. So he's decided to take up kombucha making. So he's making kombucha. We have our kitchen looks like a lab full of glass bottles, like an apothecary thing. And so I have, I don't know if y'all can see this, a little glass bottle of pomegranate kombucha and it's pretty good. He is learning. So um, this is, I don't know, take four. I I forget how many batches he's done. So when does this go on sale uh, at a store near you? (laughs) Kyle's kombucha. Yeah. Uh, that's the problem. You don't want to turn a hobby into a hustle, right? Or we we're so often told we need to do that and we don't want to do that. Yeah. This needs to be just for yeah. us. So I just make my yeah. coworkers okay. at the school jealous with my homemade kombucha that costs like two cents instead of $4. So well, I'll come drinking. visit you and drink my fill. Yeah. Oh yeah. We, we will happily distribute to friends for free. All right, Seth, what are you drinking? Um, I'm drinking bad office coffee. Uh, again, I think the, I feel like this is like the third week in a row where I haven't had a chance to go down to the amazing coffee shop that is just 20 feet downstairs mm-hmm. to get actual coffee. I've run in from another meeting. Um, actually, that's not true. I ran from the meeting through the break room to the Keurig to make myself literally the worst caffeine delivery system known to man. Mm-hmm. And I have it in a little white office cup. So that's what mm. I'm drinking today. It'll pass the time. That's about all <laughs> it's good for. Passing It'll the time keep you awake. and keeping mm-hmm. me awake. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I get it. Um, would you rank bad office coffee one step above bad church coffee? No. No. It's, it's. I mean, in this day and age, really, with the advent of the Keurig, I would say that most bad coffee, it's, it's a pretty egalitarian scale now because pretty <laughs> much everybody has a Keurig and they, and they all have these different pods yeah. that are you know, about the same and about the same in quality. And so it's mm-hmm. all pretty terrible. Sorry, Keurig, they, they do make caffeine fast. That's a positive thing. I don't yeah. think they're going to be reaching out to us and asking us to sponsor the show. Clearly not a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, probably that's not. All right, though. Probably We're not. okay. We're coffee snobs. Okay. Well, we have a third person around the table, which we get to do every now and then once in a blue moon, but not often enough. And this time it's with our friend, Shauna Nequist. So Shauna, what are you drinking? Well, I have two things. Um, it is like 52 and rainy here in New York City. So I have what is probably my fourth enormous mug of Irish breakfast tea for the day. Mm. And um, you can tell how tired I am by how many tea bags are in one mug. <laughs> and it's three. It's Holy that kind wow. of mm-hmm. um, And then my other, this is my new favorite thing, the ginger sparkling water from Whole Foods. It is delicious. I'm a major sparkling water person. Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, we live in the city on the third floor. And so when we first moved here, we were like, you know what we can't buy anymore is LaCroix. Like we can't, it's heavy. You have to carry it all the way up. Then you have to take the recycling, the cans all the way down. We're not allowed to do this anymore. And so now we don't buy it with our normal groceries. We just send our kids to the drugstore constantly, like in the middle of the afternoon. I'm like, buddy, you want to go to CVS for me, please? Um, (laughs) 
And so I, we have really strong feelings about sparkling water and I just discovered the whole foods ginger flavor and I am into it. Okay. I mean, well, isn't we, that why we have kids to send them <laughs> to the CVS? A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 I, I used to live in a big city in, in Asia in Turkey. And that was always a delight that you could just send your kids to go get something, but it was not a delight to live in a high rise, except that we had an elevator. But I remember that like caring about groceries by the weight when before I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Exactly. Now, you know, you get to the store and you're like, I'm sorry, orange juice and apple juice. What am I, a weightlifter? <laughs> no. Pick one. Right. Right. Do you have an elevator? No, we're, but we're only okay. on the third floor. So yeah. yeah. So it, the good news is it's not that high up. The bad news is you're going to carry it every step. Yeah. Right. Mm. <laughs> right. Mm. How long have y'all lived well, there now? Three and a half years. Really? That flew mm -hmm. by to me who did not do the moving. <laughs> well, it was mostly during a pandemic. So I'm not, the math is sort of weird on that one. Yeah. Yeah. But we yeah, love it. Yeah. We have, we wake up every day, happy to wake up in this city, which is a big deal. Mm. So yeah. let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk a little bit about you. I'm so excited to have you um, for you. people who listen to the podcast and who may have, um, who may have read my books. You're at least familiar with Shauna's work <laughs> through both my forwards. You're so kind. You're an amazing human who, uh, who has written both my forwards. You're a writer. You're an amazing writer. You're not just any writer. You're an amazing writer. And in fact, um, you know, we, we received your new book, um, a book that we'll talk probably a little bit about today. It's called, I guess I haven't learned that yet. And I was sitting down this weekend, I opened it up and within the first three pages, I was like, if no one had told me who this was, I would know this is Shauna. <laughs> um, your, your cadence is good. Your writing is, is sp spot on hands down. Some of the best, um, in the in the faith space, um, but this book felt a lot different to me, um, in that it felt maybe, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, maybe the darkest yet, and also foiled with the most light. Um, it was a really interesting read for me to see so much uh, depth and range from dark to light, and and I'd love to talk about that a little bit uh, today, and and how you found yourself living all of a sudden in New York? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, you sent me a text over the weekend that just like, it, you know how some, you do, I was actually out of town. I was staying at a friend's house and you pick up your phone and you expect like, I don't know, six texts from weird things you subscribe to and don't care about, or you want to make sure your kids are okay or whatever. And the one text I had Sunday morning was from you and it was so kind and really, really meant so much. So thank you. Mm. Um, and I would say, uh, yes, this is absolutely the darkest book. Um, it's interesting that you feel like there's a lot of lightness in it because I think by the end there is, but I think you have to wade through uh, like 120 pages before you get any, mm -hmm. which is sort of how life is sometimes. So we were in a season uh, I was in my early 40s. I lived in my hometown for a long time. And in five or six different ways, it became clear that our life there had ended. And frankly, I was the last to know. I am a hardcore hanger honor. I am a like, go down with the ship. Um, I get an idea in my head and I'm just going to stay with it. Um, even though, you know, everything in around me is screaming to the contrary. And so, um, 
it was clear that a lot of the things that we had loved about our life in Chicago had ended and it was really, really painful. And Mm. we needed to find a new place to make a life. And so we did like this 100% Goldilocks thing where we like went to this city and that city and it, we were, um, nothing felt right. There were cities that we had loved for years that then when we actually thought about like living our life there, it was like every door closed in our faces and we were like, I like it. It was really hard. It was like a two or three year process of visiting all these different places, trying to like imagine a new future there. Mm. Simultaneously, we were coming to New York a couple times a year because there was a church here that we loved and still love and some friends here, some families that we really loved and we loved Broadway and we loved museums. But somehow we were on this whole Goldilocks tour of the country and never considered New York because I think when you grow up in like ruralish, suburbanish Midwest, it, that doesn't seem like a, it's like moving to the moon. You're like, mm-hmm. some people do that, I guess, but not us. And we were so, again, sort of the last to know. I, um, We were here for maybe our fifth or sixth visit in two years. And our friend Jonathan took us out to brunch and he was like, here's the thing. I think you're going to move to New York and I think it's going to be to this neighborhood and to this seminary. Um, Can we talk about that in specific here today at brunch? (laughs) And uh, a bunch of things happened the whole rest of that weekend. By the time we went home, we like, we knew this was our next thing. And Mm. Um, it was the exact opposite sensation of all those other cities that we visited. It was like every little door we tapped opened uh, a place to live and good public schools for the kids and um, interesting work and interesting learning opportunities and a church that we loved and friends for our kids. It was like in a season where we had felt so many endings, such painful, deep, difficult endings it was like through all of that darkness, there was this one bright little path named New York. And I mm. experienced it as some of the, like God's most gracious gift to me in my life forever. So that's, mm. that's our story of how we got to New York. You know, it's funny when I heard that you were moving, um, it surprised me at first because I, I almost associate you with Chicago. Like I think of you as such a Midwesterner. You know, um, but then when I heard that, it made so much sense to me because of uh, kind of the sacramentality of place and how place gets in our bones and becomes part of us, and that um, b- we can live in a place and love a place, but they don't necessarily have to be intertwined. And so when we leave somewhere, we're not necessarily commentating on how we no longer love a place, it stays in us. But then when we're just meant to be somewhere new, it actually, you know, gets in our bloodstream and becomes part of who we are. So I would, I mean, you said three and a half years in my experience, because I've moved a lot of places. um, It feels like it almost takes like two and a half to three years before I start feeling at home somewhere, no matter what. Um, How's it feel at this point? Like three and a half years in New York, do you feel like a New Yorker? Well, I mean, there are, I don't know that I'm allowed to say that. There Everybody has a different rule for what makes you a New Yorker. You know, it's seven years, it's two years, it's 10 years, it's living through a major city event. It's, you know, um, some people say it's when you have a screaming fight with your spouse on the sidewalk. That's when you're a true New Yorker. (laughs) If that's the case, yes. Uh, Some people say it's um, going to the drugstore in the middle of the night in your pajamas. Also, yes. Um, uh, uh, Either yelling at or physically pushing a taxi cab for not for getting the right of way wrong. Also, yes. Um, (laughs) 
So I, I don't know if we're official or not, and I don't know what makes us official, but I do think I would have said that it takes at least two years. In the other moves I've done, it takes two years. Um, in some ways, I, I don't know how the pandemic affects all that math. We had been here just a year and a half before that. And so that in some ways makes you like, we were in this city for so long without going anywhere else. And we were like, mm-hmm. you know, eating in restaurants that had built sheds out into the bus lanes. And, you know, mm. but also there were so many parts of city life that we missed. And so who knows what our math is. I think though, Tish, you said something important about the way like identity and place work together. Um, I think several people said to me, like, I, you're like the most Midwestern person I know. You're the most like Chicago person I know. Can you exist somewhere else? <laughs> and I think it's been an interesting thing to unhook identity from place and say, I don't know that I am a New Yorker, but I love being in this city every day. Like maybe mm-hmm. my identity doesn't have to be tied to a place, but maybe if I just love the place where I am, wherever it is, and I can learn about it and let it shape me and let it bring me delight and let it challenge me, then that's enough. Um, I'm not ever going to, you know, my kids still tease me every once in a while because they'll hear me say something and like the Midwestern accent just comes all the way out. Like, I think it's softened mostly. And then I wish them a happy Valentine's Day. And they were like, oh my gosh, (laughs) (laughs) don't say that anymore. (laughs) Um, Happy Valentine's Day. Um, It like (laughs) all came rushing back on that holiday. But I think the Midwest will always be my history. It will always be where I'm from. It will always be so much a part of my, uh, yeah, the the where I came from kind of thing. Mm. But I don't, I didn't exchange it for being a New Yorker. I think I, I, it's my past, and New York is my present, and who knows what my future is. But mm-hmm. it's it's not as much about my identity anymore as it is about just loving the place that you're living in just for this moment. Right. Right. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, I think there's um, there's a deep thread uh, in your book that I read about identity, and the, and there's I, I mean I think you have a lot of, of wisdom to offer us on this. When you you talk about the identity not just of the Midwest, the identity of a church structure, the idea identity that's built in a family unit, the identity that's built in a new family unit. Um, when you get married, I mean identity is a deep thread um, that that you're running. Um, in this book and maybe in this season of life. And, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what you're learning about identity, particularly in light of the fact that, you know, you're in a new location. Um, there's a new church. You certainly have some of the same old friends, but, but you're making new friends too. You talk about the, the smallness of even a group of, of friends of closing it down from the huge group to maybe a, a smaller select few. So, so your ways of thinking are shifting. Um, it, it seems to me that everything about your identity that we would say is your outward identity is, is, is kind of shifting other than hospitality and stories, as you say. Um, so talk to me a little bit about identity. Like, what are the ways that you found identity in the past? What are the things, the, the ways in which you're sort of deconstructing those past ways of thinking of identity? And how are you thinking of identity now? Those are such good questions. And I would say, um, I mean, 
an easy way to think about it, if if we all are Enneagram people, is I'm a seven with a very strong six wing, which means mm. belonging and loyalty is really, really important to me. And mm-hmm. looking back now, and it's so interesting, the things that we can only see in hindsight, right? It's like most things. Um, I had defined myself so specifically by the people and organizations and groups and belief systems that I was connected to. Belonging. I, I so much of my identity was determined by the things and people to whom and to which I belonged. Mm. And then I and then I went through this incredibly painful season of unbelonging, not belonging to the church I grew up at and and treasured, not belonging to the friend group I had been a part of and had been so committed to building for so long, not belonging to my hometown anymore, not belonging to, in many ways, sort of the larger faith community that I had been a part of for a long time, um, even just like within publishing and all of that. And um, that was incredibly painful for me. It, I, I was mm-hmm. so disoriented and so deeply lonely. And and I experienced such a tremendous loss of identity. I remember saying to a friend, I'm surprised that I can still recognize my own face in the mirror when I walk by because I feel so altered. Like I'm shocked that with everything that's happened inside and around me, my face is still the same. How can that be? Mm. And I think what I've learned you know, the immediate uh, temptation in a season like that is to just really quickly belong to a bunch of new stuff, right? Um, it's like like the, like hardcore rebound, right? right, right. Um, let me let me just like join up with a lot of new things to bring back those pieces of identity that feel like are missing. And for a lot of reasons, some of them I think deeply kind of intuitive, and some of them God's work in my life, and some of them just I don't even really understand why I didn't do that. I just Mm. stayed in the unbelonging and it reshaped me and it made Mm. me look at the idea of belonging really differently. Remember saying to a friend, I'll never belong to anything again, the way I belonged to those things. Mm. Um, You know, there's the, the phrase belonging to yourself. That's something I'd never thought about before. I'd never had to think about taking care of my own self, protecting myself, um, building a, a structure or shelter for my own heart, my own self, my own identity. I had always had so many people and things and ideas and organizations to do that for me. And this was really mm. the season where I, one of the phrases that became really meaningful to me is I was building a shelter inside my own heart that I could live in. And I, of course, belong to a church. I'm a part of this seminary and this community. There are friends to whom I am. I have a sense of belonging. Of course, I belong to Aaron and to to our kids and to our extended families, but in a very different way. Um, I had to find a sense of identity and belonging only to myself. And that's something I'll carry with me now for the rest of my life. Mm. I'll belong in different ways to different things throughout my life, but I'll never have so many parts of my identity determined by things outside of myself. And I think we all hit that point at different points in our our lives. I think I hit it really late, to be honest. I think I Mm -hmm. stayed in the belonging. Uh, Most people don't do it that way. It's not really right or wrong. It's just the way it happened for me. It's possible it made it a little more painful because I had been belonging to a couple of the same things for so long. But And now when I think of identity, I sort of don't care at all. That's a weird way to say it. But like, 
<laughs> I'm, I have no desire to like, I'm the one who this, I'm the one who that to like define myself in those ways. And you guys know, especially in publishing, people love that stuff. You're, you know, you're like, they really love to make like a mood board of you. (laughs) You're, you know, you wear these glasses and you have this kind of hair and you like this food and you go these places. And there's a part of me that says, oh, I'm going to, I'm like a, like a, going to be a snake shedding her skin every six months from here on out. I'm going to love this. And then I'm going to love that. And I'm going to believe in Mm. this. And then I'm going to walk away for it. And I'm going to connect deeply with this. And then I'm going to connect deeply to the next thing. And I don't want to have to nail down my identity so much by those outer markers. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this old, um, there's this old article that I read about Neil Young once upon a time, and I can't find it. I'm struggling. I want to find it so badly, but uh, in this article, he talked about, um, you know, after his first big hit, like, what did he do? And he recorded a live album of all new songs that the crowd had no idea. They thought they were going to listen to his most popular work, you know, and he plays this whole new song and he records it live and it goes over like a lead balloon. And this is essentially what he says. He's like, I don't want to be known for who I was. I want to be known for who I'm becoming. And really who I'm becoming is more important to me than who I was. And that's sort of a summary of the article. It was a brilliant article because he's saying, I think a lot of what you're saying, which is, um, you know, your, your, your identity isn't belonging to a certain genre, or a certain thing or a certain people necessarily as much as it's being who you are innately. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's a, be- it's a beautiful thought. Um, so I'm dubbing you the modern Neil Young, maybe. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> well, and you know, what's funny that you said that Seth is cause I was thinking about Daniel Day Lewis when you were talking, which is so weird. Um, he has this habit of like, after he has a really big success, he goes away for a long time. Like, um, I forget which movie that was huge for him. I mean, he's on a number of them. Maybe it was last of the Mohicans. I forget what he, he like left and moved to Italy for like a year and to a no-name town and apprenticed under a shoe cobbler because he wanted to learn how to make shoes. And he just like disappeared because he did not want other people to tell him or to like give him value, give him worth. He didn't want the outside world, you know, like you just won an Oscar, you now count. Um, And so he did that. And it kind of reminds me a little bit, Seth and I've talked about John Steinbeck quite a bit on the show, um, how after he wrote, I believe it was East of Eden, whichever one it was that he got um, the Pulitzer for, the Nobel Peace Literature, I forget, one of his big hits, um, he went and actually became a tenant, a migrant farmer. Like he worked among the migrants. And this is where he eventually got his idea for Grapes of Wrath. Um, because he so did not want the outside world to tell him who he was. It like freaked him out. His, his own success freaked him out. And I think there's something really healthy about being so aware of um, where those voices come from to make sure that you kind of have a healthy like, okay, stay way over there. I don't want you to be the the marker of telling me who I am. And it's way too easy to just fall prey to that in our like, everywhere, uh, you know, nonstop people are telling us good things about us. Well, and I think that's one thing that's amazing about New York is um, there are like legit famous people here. Nobody cares about me. Nobody like um, it's really like it is a wonderful place to absolutely get lost and Mm. to reinvent yourself and reinvent yourself again and reinvent yourself again. And people just like categorically don't care. They just Mm -hmm. want to know, like, are you kind? Are you interesting? Can my kid come over for a play date? 
would you like to meet for dinner? Like that's it. And Mm -hmm. getting to build a whole new set of relationships just purely on that level is pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And so I'm curious how this connects, because I'm pretty sure it does with the title of your book, which is so fantastic. I guess I haven't learned that yet. What are you talking about with that? So, I mean, there are a million different ways to answer it. And one of the ways I will answer it for this particular conversation is, and Seth knows this because I went through a season after we had been here maybe six months and I really needed to finish this book and I just couldn't do it. I was um, grieving the loss of what I thought my life was going to be like and grieving the end of so many relationships and the identities that went with it and that sense of belonging and I would sit down to write. I remember this so viscerally. I would sit down to write and all I would do was cry. Um, Like weird, hard, not like, it's so good. It brings a tear to my eye. Like, I think I need need help. (laughs) And um, I emailed or texted a handful of people and Seth was one of them. And I said, uh, uh, here's a weird question. Do you think I should keep being a writer or could I be allowed to stop? Because it's really, really hard and painful. Um, and it's, it's harder than it's ever been. And I'm not sure it's worth it. And I, I don't know why I'm putting myself through this. And basically I was, I was asking a handful of people in my life to give me permission to not do it anymore. And unfortunately Mm -hmm. none of them did, um, each of them and Seth, I won't put words in your mouth, but, um, each of these people came back and said, this is who you are and this is what you're going to do. And, um, you might need to slow down. You might need to get some outside help. You might need a new therapist. You might need any number of other things to help you through this, but you don't get to stop being a writer because this is who you are in the world. And, and Seth, does that, am I categorizing our conversation? Yeah, no, right? that's right. And I, I mean, I think, I think this also builds off what you were saying earlier. I think there are things, particularly when we're sort of rediscovering who we are, we're, we're sort of wandering away from old identities there are still giftings and things that you like innately are and have in you that you, you like, you're never going to lose those things. You never get to like get rid of those things or shun those things or cast them away. And I, I do remember getting that email and just, you know, I think my basic response was like, this is who you are. Like you, like again, when I picked up the book and I was like, Oh, there it is. There's the voice. There's the voice that I've read before. I know I understand I could peg it immediately. Um, it comes screaming off the page, like that's who you are. Um, now that's not an necessarily an identity marker for you. If you couldn't write tomorrow, would that mean that you all of a sudden weren't, you know, worthy or great or amazing? No, it wouldn't mean that at all. Um, but, but in the work that I've done with other authors, when they're asking, can I quit? Uh, normally what they're saying is this is really hard. (laughs) They're not actually asking for permission to quit. They're just saying, this is really hard. There's deep resistance. It's often emotional. It's often soul work. And so they quit. Yeah. yeah. Or don't. And, and, and I, I wanted to, and I didn't. Thank you, Seth. Um, but what I, I had to navigate, though, like, uh, what does it mean to be a writer and to, quote, unquote, have something to say when you have nothing to say, and you're not sure about anything. And so really, I had to find a way to write that dismantled the idea that I was an expert on anything. I, I found within myself a willingness to keep writing, 
but I did not have the willingness to say, um, I, I know something with certainty right now. I just didn't, yeah. I didn't know anything with certainty and I, and it felt like a lie to, to pretend I did. And so I had to find a topic and a, a title and a way of thinking about it that represented authentically. Listen, I'll keep showing up as a writer, but I can't promise you any answers. I can only promise you um, empathy and questions. That's it. That's what I have mm-hmm. right now. I have a lot of empathy if you're as lost as I am, and I have probably more questions than anybody. And so that title was something I could hold on to and say, that's an honest title for me instead of like, uh, back and better than before. Not true. You know, um, it, it was an honest way to capture this season of my life. You didn't follow up your last book with a new book called Perfect Over Present. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I love the word yet. Like that's a word that yeah. I talk about with my kids a lot. You know, there's they roll their eyes when they hear growth mindset because that's a thing that just comes up. Oh, yeah. But it, it speaks to that, right? This idea of like, it doesn't, def- like what you know or don't know doesn't define you as a person. And I think those of us in this space where we are writers can easily fall prey to this idea of it is my job to impart that which I know for the betterment of others. And perhaps that's not at all what, <laughs> what we might be called to do in a particular season. Well, and that's never been uh, my intent. You know, I, I mm-hmm. grew up in a family, uh, a pastor's kid. I very specifically chose not to become a pastor. Um, I uh, I remember years ago, Carolyn, uh, my editor, who I think you guys know, um, mm-hmm. years ago, she was like, hey, we're going to do this event and I want you um, – young writers need like, they just need like mentoring and help and like an expert voice. They need someone to talk them through all the, I was like, yes, we totally need that. I can't wait for this. She was like, Shauna, you're that voice. I was like, oh no, no. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. No. Not okay. It, not it. Right. But I just, I, um, I've always approached writing as, um, an act of friendship, an act of hospitality, yeah. an act yeah. of, saying like, I'm, I'm willing to walk alongside of you. I'm willing to go first and say what's true in my life. I've never been comfortable with that. Like now I'm the expert kind of thing. Um, so I've, it's always been important to me to approach writing with a very, uh, like a lot of humility and curiosity. And then, I mean, in the middle of this season, I felt like, <laughs> I, I know less than nothing. There has to be a way through that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Talk to me. I mean, we have a lot of people who listen who are writers per se, but they do write. I mean, they're, they're journalers, they're letter writers, they write uh, fiction on their own. In fact, uh, somebody who listened sent me two books of short stories that I got last week that are they're just self-published and they're um, hilarious, yeah. amazing, great. Um, talk to me and talk to our listeners. Like for you, how much of writing is a process of self-discovery? Um, less self-revelation even and more like self-discovery um, and how you use the writing process, even if you're not publishing it, um, for, for spiritual formation, for understanding who you are, for understanding where God's moving in your life. That's a, um, I love that question. And I would say I um, writing is how I know almost anything at all about myself. Um, mm. I, uh, I love the, one of the reasons I love the act of writing is because I learn so much about what I really feel in the process. Um, you know, I think most of us, but especially women, Christians, Midwesterners, I know how I should feel, right? And it's like happy and grateful all the time, you know? <laughs> um, 
And I have a strong sense of like duty and responsibility and, and hard work and all that stuff. And it's very often I don't, um, it's easy for me to experience happy and positive emotions. And a lot of times I'm not at all in touch with my sadness or anger or grief until I create mm. a quiet enough space for those things to come out. And writing is usually that place. But I would say I use, um, so I write in a very like unvarnished, get it all out, millions of words, thousands of words, just like blah, 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 blah. And then this is the important thing. I give it a lot of time and I get outside help before mm-hmm. anything becomes like something that I would show other people. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people will say like, oh, I love your books. They're just like reading your journal. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you never want to see my journal. <laughs> um, right. And also like that makes my editor feel bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's really important. Like they're two different. They're not. There are essays in the books that come from those initial journal pages, but they have a lot of time and a lot of outside help to get there. But I think Mm -hmm. just the practice of writing is a a real tool for transformation. Maybe not Mm -hmm. for everyone, but for me, it is. It really, it um, shows me a lot about myself that I haven't, I don't know other ways to sort of access those places. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you write on a routine? Like, do you sit down and write daily at a particular time, a particular word count, or do you just wait till the mood strikes? Oh, no. If I waited till the mood strikes, I would never write anything. Um, I write. So and I think part of this is because I got my first book contract um, the same week I found out I was pregnant with Henry, our older son. And so I had to learn to be a professional writer while I was pregnant and with a newborn. And so um, I learned to write in three hour stretches and because I nursed every three hours. And it was literally like, that. Like my neighbor was watching my baby and I would type for two hours and 57 minutes. And then I would run two blocks and feed my baby and run black, run back. And then I had two more hours and 57 minutes. And then, you know, all my whole writing life was according to like, then the preschool schedule, then the kindergarten schedule, then the first grade schedule. Um, and so I write when it's time to write and I'm pretty disciplined mm-hmm. about that. I don't go to lunch. I don't go to breakfast. I don't do my dishes during that time. And I'm, I'm best in the morning after the kids go to school. So I get up, do all the stuff with them. And then when they leave and the house is quiet, or if the house isn't quiet, if Aaron's here, I'll go to a coffee shop or something. But my best bet is like that, like eight o'clock till let's say 11 or 12. And then I've learned by now, then I'll do meetings in the afternoon or emails or something. But that morning time, I really have to protect. Um, And I write like, like it's my job because it is my job. I'm not like a, I just had an amazing idea in the middle of the night, or I'm going to leave a party because I'm feeling inspired. Like I I show (laughs) up to work the same way other people show up to work. That's the way it works for me anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we understand that. (laughs) That's not to say that there's one way to write either necessarily. Um, but that is the best way for you. I have uh, a friend who talks to me about, you know, my best pieces are written at two in the morning when I wake up with an idea. And I'm like, I, w- I would never wake up at two in the morning. Like if I had to write <laughs> at two in the morning, I would never write anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so many different ways to do it. It's fascinating um, how you do it. I know people that write before their kids get up. They'll get up at four and yeah. write, write from four to eight, um, yeah. uh, you know, not from eight to 12. And then they're in bed by probably four in the afternoon, who knows? But, um, but yeah, there's the, you you know, there may not be one way to do it, but I think one of the, the myths that I hear you dispelling and that I think needs to be dispelled is like somehow writers are 
these like artistic, whimsical, they don't have routines, they don't have regimens, they don't sit down to do the work. It's not real work. Man, this is some of the hardest work that's being done is being done by writers and it is a grind. Um, so I, I love hearing your routine. You set aside the work hours, but also I'm grateful for the grind. Like I'm, I'm grateful that you're setting aside the time to do it because this is good stuff. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So uh, just thinking about our listeners and I know so you, you already hinted at this, that so many of us go through these upheavals and these changes. Um, a word tossed around a lot, I think on the internet, especially in certain spaces is this idea of deconstruction. Um, you probably knew that word <laughs> that I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Um, is this something that you've experienced? Is this a totally different beast? Like what, what, what do you have to say about that? Mm, um, I actually, I really love this topic. Um, so I would say uh, a couple things about it. First, I don't totally understand why people are so critical of the idea right now. Um, that seems to me based in a lot of unhelpful fear and judgment. Um, frankly, I think deconstruction is a is an act of faithfulness and devotion. Right? If you care, it's like going to marriage counseling. If you care enough about your marriage to get help, that means you want to stay married. It means you want to build your marriage. If you want to walk away, you walk away, right? If you want to walk away from your faith, you just leave. You don't deconstruct it. You just walk away. If you love it enough to look closely at it, to pull apart the edges, to rebuild it and refashion it and ask hard questions, that's an act of faithfulness and devotion. And I think we should... Um, celebrate it and help people and give them tools and not um, especially not leave people alone to do it alone. I think one of the Mm. scariest things is when people feel like there's not anyone that they can call when they have these questions. And when you asked if I have been through um, a process of deconstruction, I would say one of the things I'm most grateful for in in my growing up years is my mom, who you guys both know, um, she was raised in a very conservative Baptist environment in Michigan and then ended up being pastor's wife, uh, founding uh, the founding couple of the, what ended up being a very large church, which is not totally what she bargained for. And then when she was in her 40s and I was in my teens, she went through a major, major deconstruction, like years and years, all the questions, um, reading the mystics and um, learning about contemplative theology and um, not attending our church, which is a big deal for a pastor's wife. And I watched her do that. I watched her do it so honestly and beautifully. And I watched my dad and the elders of our church and the leaders of our church um, give her the space and affirm her journey and allow her to let it take as long as it took. And it sort of built in me at that very kind of fledgling faith time, um, it really normalized. Like I grew up thinking this is a thing we do, right? Mm. Like not Mm. this is a catastrophe that only happens to some of us, but that it would be more like, uh, more like going to marriage counseling than getting a divorce. Like Mm. it's part of the process. It's part of being a person of faith. Um, so I wasn't scared of it. Um, I think I've gone through 1 million mini deconstructions and reconstructions. I think that's a part of being a person of faith. And one thing I'm really grateful for and kind of proud of is 
um, I think I'm one of those people that you call when you're going through that process. And I can just say like, oh, right, 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 right. Come over. You're going to be fine. Tell me all the questions. Read this. Let's talk about this. Read this poem. Let's go on this walk together. Let's visit this community of faith. I, n- I never see it as a catastrophe. I see it as an act of bravery and faithfulness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you actually describe it really well. You write, I took my own self apart, bone by bone. I asked every question, ripped every seam, dismantled every assumption and agreement until it evaporated to dust. And here's the part that that really got me, affected me. Where did I land? At the bottom of the ocean, somewhere behind Jupiter. I'm a tiny bird on a branch, a silver fish in the cold ocean. Uh, it's such a beautiful way of describing an evocative way and a beautiful way of describing the way it feels when you're in the middle of a deconstruction. You're, you do feel in the middle of a cold, dark place. And yet you have somehow figured out a way um, to find light on the other side of that. And so what's the secret in deconstruction when you're in the middle of that cold, dark place, like how do you push through to the light? Um, number one, you ask for help. And I hope there's someone in your immediate community that is willing to walk with you. But if there's not, you make a phone call, you get on a flight, you schedule a Zoom. You, you, this is not something to be undertaken alone. And so yeah. keep asking until you find someone who's willing to walk with you. And I would say, especially for those of us who, for whom like, childhood and identity and religion are all kind of mixed up in each other. A lot of times this is family of origin stuff. This is therapy stuff. This isn't just like, I need a new book about theology (laughs) stuff. And so I am one of the things I learned so over and over through the last several years of my life was how much help I needed. I needed a spiritual director. I needed a good therapist. I needed someone to go for a walk with sometimes in silence and sometimes while we cried together and sometimes while we just talked about what we were going to make for dinner. Um, But you need people to sort of midwife you through these processes. And so I'd say, don't, don't do it alone Um, and take responsibility for moving forward. A lot of times people stay in positions of great pain or darkness because they get stuck not knowing what forward looks like. Yeah. Just try stuff. You don't have to it, it almost everything's undoable. This is one of my favorite pieces of advice about living in New York City and now um I use it for everything. Someone told me when you don't know which way the subway goes, wh- when you don't know which way you're supposed to go, you just can't figure it out. You're looking, the words don't make sense, they don't seem north and south to you. You have no reference point, no one will help you. Get on and start going. And if you're going the wrong way, stop, cross the platform, get on the other one. And now, you know, right? Like not (laughs) that much is lost. Don't just stand on the subway platform and one wonder about it forever. Pick one way. And if you're wrong, go the other way. So ask for help and move forward in some way. Even if it's the wrong way, the motion sometimes helps us know where where to go next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That is good. Um, So I guess as we kind of land the plane here, we have, you know, Seth hinted at 
that we have a number of writers. We also, I would say the key descriptor of our audience is readers. Like everyone that listens to us loves to read, it seems like. Um, so I would not doubt that a lot of our listeners are going to read your book or already are reading their book, uh, your book. So I'm curious, what would be like the one thing you want for people that read your book? Like if you could, mm. you know, say, I want someone who reads this book and puts it down when they are done to blank, what would you say? So I actually, I know this more clearly than I have for any other book. I uh, got to a point, not the point where I asked Seth, Seth if I was allowed to stop writing, a different mm-hmm. point where I wanted to quit, where um, we were getting pretty close to the end and just, it was, it was just hard. It had been too hard for too long and I wasn't sure we were making progress. And I realized the only way I was going to feel okay putting all of this very kind of fragile, tender journey, all this out there would be if it was genuinely useful to people. Like, I don't need you to like me. I don't need you to think I'm smart. I don't need you to think I make good sentences. I don't need, I don't, is it useful? That's the only thing that could keep me moving forward. And so that's the biggest thing. If someone were to put it down and say that was useful in my life, mm. it helped me understand something in my own life, or it gave me an, a new way to think about this or a practical step to take, um, I don't need this to be a reflection on, again, like how much people like or don't like me. I need to know it helped. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, Seth? Well, if that's the metric, I think it's useful. Yeah. And I think our our listeners will find it useful. Thank you. Already. All right. Well, Shauna, we wrap up our time. Uh, sharing one thing that's adding more beauty to our days. We're big fans around here of the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness. So we like to kind of talk about what is that one little thing, big or small, that's just adding a glimmer of beauty these days. It could be anything. So I'm curious if you have something in your life right now. Well, when you just brought up a minute ago that most of your listeners are readers. I got really excited and I thought we were going to talk about books. Um, and, and then I understand we were just going to talk about my book, which is fine. I understand that's my job right now. But the, sure. first, thing I, the first thing I thought of was, um, have you guys read Ross Gay's book, The Book of Delights? I have not. Ooh, no. It is like, order it immediately. Um, okay. I, I told a friend, actually, I said, um, if I stayed in someone's guest room and they had this on the nightstand, that's the most perfect thing to ever meet you when you wake up in the morning. So Ross Gay is an extraordinary poet and he um, lives between Indiana and New York City. And so a lot of his writing, like when he's in Indiana, it's about like gardening and flowers and plants. And then his New York City stuff is about like cobblestone streets and whatever. But instead of writing a volume of poetry, this particular book, is an essayette is what he uses the phrase essayette. It's like a paragraph or two every single day of the year, something that brings him delight. Mm. And it's so beautiful to read about delight through the eyes of a poet, obviously. But what it does as you read it is it connects you. You start seeing through the lens of delight. You start walking through your daily life a little bit differently. I, I have mm. probably given away conservatively a hundred copies at this point. I, I just wow. think it, it's the kind of book, but I mean, yeah, no, I probably have. Um, Ross I get Gay, on a kick you. like that. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I would love to meet him someday. Um, but I, I love books that don't just change us while we're reading them, but help us live a different way. And that that is one that just brings me so much joy and hope. 
Mm. I have it on a tab now. <laughs> that Yay. sounds just up my alley. We're all yeah. going to go order it. Now you just yeah. you just sold two copies. Not only have you bought 100 copies, you just sold two copies at least. <laughs> well, and yeah, one thing I've go. heard. So I love reading physical copies, and it's one that I have the physical copy of. Um, but people rave about his audiobook because he's a poet. And he reads a lot of his own work. He has a beautiful speaking and reading voice. So I actually have a friend who said that they listen to one or two tracks every morning, almost like a like you'd listen to two songs. Um, wow. uh, they listen to just That's one awesome. or two little essayettes just to kind of calibrate them for their day. Like frame up your day. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. So Tish, what mm-hmm. if if we're all going to go buy that book, what's one thing <laughs> we should all go buy that you are mm-hmm. reading, watching, or listening to that's bringing a little bit of, of beauty or truth or goodness to your life? You guys have probably already read this, and I have too. Uh, I read it in college, but it has been 20 years. Um, I dusted off Walking on Water by Madeline Langle. I've been reading that. Lately, um, Shauna, I didn't know if you knew this, but I'm writing fiction right now. And it is just a whole different beast. It's like a different part of my brain. Um, I love it. It's the best, hardest work I've ever done. But she, for those who haven't yet read this, it is a nonfiction work about what it means for art to be Christian in name, but really more sacramental. And so uh, it's right up the alley of the things we'd like to talk about here. But really, she just gets into it's, it's rather stream of consciousness. But to me, it's shot in the arm encouragement of what it looks like to be a Christian who makes stuff. And to me, the takeaway as a writer is it reminds me a little bit of um, the way Tolkien talked about how his fiction, he never thought of it as Christian fiction, because all stories hint at the one true story. And so he's just going to focus on writing well. Like he cared about writing well, not writing a Christian story. And so you can't not let it just bleed or seep, you know, through the the big stories that matter, but to really focus more on um, the act of writing as a sacramental practice. Um, and so, yeah, it's just on my nightstand right now. I'm reading a few pages at a time just until I'm done or until I can't keep my eyes open. And it's been a really good companion writing fiction, which is scary and hard. So two thumbs up for that book. <laughs> I love that. I love her and I love that particular book. And I might uh, reach out to you at some point to learn everything I can about your fiction writing because I would love to learn right. the same thing. Well, and Seth is doing it as well. So I know. <laughs> uh, very blind leading the blind, but yes. Happy, I'm happy to talk writing at any time. All right. So, Seth, what about you? What's adding more beauty to your life these days? Well, um, as you know, work, oof, <laughs> it just sucks everything dry. Um, I do love it, but boy, is it time consuming lately. Um, I, two things. One, I revisited um, the poems of William Stafford, particularly the poem Scars, Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago and they were having a really difficult time explaining why at the age they're at, which is in the mid forties, um, they saw the world as beautiful and yet like innately almost dangerous, but like able to navigate the danger, but how people 10 years younger were just like full of optimism. And even though we're in the middle of this pandemic, like things are going to be great. We're going to come out stronger and blah, blah, blah. And I just said, go back and read Stafford's scars. And so I went back and read Stafford's scars. It's a beautiful poem. 
Um, it's about an aged woman in a church who has a scar on her cheek. Um, you don't know the origin of it, but she looks up at the choir and sees all of these rows of children looking out this beautiful window and she sees the place where the scars will be. It's, it is a beautiful poem that talks about the wisdom that comes with age. And, um, I just, I, you know, the more I read it and the older uh, I grow, I feel like that is becoming more true in my life. And so that's the thing that's brought, <laughs> brought a lot of beauty. But then I'm also watching um, Amber plan um, garden season, plan for garden season. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I would like to say that the flowers are bringing me beauty or whatever, but like just watching Amber tend to nature and just like come alive again, like it's the spring. And so she's coming alive and it's, there's something about that that's bringing, um, bringing uh, beauty to me, especially when, and this is a story for another day that we've just, we've come out of our own really dark season over the last few years. And, and she is really tending to beauty in a specific way. And it's a way again, um, to speak about being useful, Shauna, that I think you capture really well. Um, you wrote, and this is what I'll, I'll say is bringing beauty to my life because it put a perfect language to what I see in Amber. I believe in seeking out beauty absolutely every chance we get as an act of prayer, as an act of worship, as an act of resistance. Um, and I feel like I am watching Amber live into that truth, and that's bringing me a lot of beauty these days. So thank you for putting language to that, Shauna. Mm. And if Amber's listening, then I think I just maybe scored some brownie points or something. Yeah. But it's yeah. true. Yeah. I love that. That's, good. That's beautiful. I love it too. It seems to be a theme, a running theme I'm hearing everywhere. Um, the idea of needing to seek out beauty as an act of resistance, especially yeah. these days, yeah. uh, not be in, in spite of hard things on in the news and in our lives, but because of. So good way to end our chat. So as we wrap this up, you can find this episode as well as all episodes at a drink with a friend.com. Uh, we haven't mentioned this in a while, but the time to come, uh, the time is coming soon to sign up to come to Tuscany with us. We're going to Tuscany in late July of 2022. So it's not too late to sign up, but you got to do it. So we'll put a link in the show notes to sign up. We would love to have you. You can find me and how to connect with me at tishoxenwriter.com. Shauna, how about you? You and your book. Uh, the book is called, I guess I haven't learned that yet. It's out April 12th um, in all the formats, including audio. And um, my preferred location on the internet is Instagram. So it's just at sneakwist. Cool. And we'll put that in the show notes. Seth, how about you? I am still on my social media fast, so do not go looking for me on social media. Uh, instead, find me at Substack. No, Seth Haynes dot Substack dot com. I always reverse that every week. You would think I would have it by now. You know what, Seth? Just do what I do. Just put your Substack link in Seth dot com, and then I'll I be do. Fine. I, I do, but it just it, <laughs> pe- people don't go there as much. It's really weird. I can't anyway. It's a long story. We'll talk about that on another podcast. Well, and you know what? Uh, All of this is in the show notes. So just go there and click on the links. Uh, Yeah. Much easier in your life. All right. Music for the show is by Kevin McLeod. Editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth and Shauna. And we'll be back here around the table with you soon. Thanks for listening. Mm